Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome, marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Tom Goodwin. Today's topic, a futurist and innovation expert talks about nowism, a look at business through tomorrow's lens. Now, Tom has been studying innovation and change his whole career. He started in the, in the agency business and held positions at, as the head of innovation at Zenith, the head of futures and insight at Publicis, and the SVP of strategy and innovation at Havas. He's a prominent public speaker. He wrote a book called Digital Darwinism, which I think is a fabulous read, and publishes a weekly missive called Nowism, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I've known Tom since my time at Farmers, where he constantly impressed me with his practical take on innovation in the future. Tom, welcome, and thanks for joining us. I think this should be really good. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks for having me on, Mike. Oh, it's great to see you. So, Tom, give us, just start, let's just start with the big, the big picture thing. Your overview uh, and thinking on change and innovation in the marketplace today. I think uh, people have got very obsessed with the idea that everything is changing, everything is different. Uh, we need to be anxious all day long. Um, if you're not ahead, then you're going to die. Um, and I try to provide a sense of calmness and sort of reassurance at the same time as being really profoundly excited by what all this stuff means. But it's quite sort of extraordinary at the moment. Like, like every new thing is either, you know, going to kill everything that existed before um, or it's a complete waste of time. There's no sort of space for kind of nuance. And um, you have to do it this minute, like AI. You have oh, to absolutely. Yeah. Like you're already late. You know, already this should be late. Right. Yeah. This should be on threads. You know, come on, it's been like two days. You know, Twitter's dead. You know, podcasting's dead. Newsletters are the future. No, I, I just tried to take a step back. I, I tried to uh, to look at change in context. I tried to focus on normal people. You know, we, we live lives more than ever that are really very much in a kind of bubble removed away from the reality of most people's lives. Uh, and I always thought the true role and the true value of a of a of an agency type person with their clients was actually to take a step back and to to remind people of what it's actually like to be a normal human. And most people this morning are waking up, you know, eating their cornflakes, thinking about threads. You know, they're thinking about gas bills. They're thinking about um, the fact they've got to fill up with gas today and they don't know how much it's going to cost. They're thinking about their vacations coming up. I, I tried to take a step back and be reassuring and also be quite pragmatic about what companies can do about it as well. Um, because increasingly, you know, everything seems to be about efficiency. You know, a, a technology like AI, everyone gets very excited about how we can, you know, take away jobs and how we can send out emails for free and how we can do personalization without people being involved. Um, and I'd love for us to be a little bit more ambitious about how we use this stuff. So how, how can we create better things? How can we serve people better? Things like that. Tell me about this, because on the efficiency front, and, and I'm kind of uh, lifting, I think, something from, from your book and your nowism letter. You say companies are trapped by where they start. Uh, hmm. 
And and this is kind of I, I think where you're going on the AI thing and the efficiency thing. We got to do it this minute. Tell, mm-hmm. I could be wrong on that, but tell me tell me what you're what you're thinking about there. I um I came up with quite a so if it sounds sort of slightly sort of self-aggrandizing, sorry, but I came up with quite a good question, I thought, which was if everyone in their company took a step back and thought, knowing everything I know now, you know, knowing how people behave, knowing the competitors there, knowing the technology that we have, knowing everything I know now, what would I have created? You know, what would my company look like? What sort of things would it do? How would it make money? And I think almost every single person in every single company would have done things differently. And that doesn't mean that there's any blame involved. It doesn't mean that people messed up. But the reality is that a bank would not find themselves with as many branches as they have. They wouldn't have the same core banking system they have. They probably wouldn't have the same KPIs that they have. You know, a car company probably wouldn't have created a a network of dealers the way they have. Um, You know, an energy company wouldn't have necessarily invested in, you know, oil-fired power stations or coal-fired power stations the way they have. Um, And there's something inherently annoying and provocative about that question, but it also raises better questions, which is, well, what is our ideal state? Um, What are the new sort of principles on which we should be working? Uh, What are things that we can do better? Um, and then how do we kind of plot a path to get between where we are and what that kind of better state is? And to do so in a way which is not about blame, it's not about um, discussions about why things happened. It's actually a much more naive and future focused approach to do something that's better. Hey, can you can you give us some examples? I know in your book you have you have a lot about steam and electricity and then digital. Yeah. Can you draw this just quickly for our, our listeners. An example of what you mean there, because I th- I think those examples are rather than talking about all the stuff like AI coming down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple lookbacks you've done on history where the examples are so profound. I think our listeners would benefit. I, th- I mean, every time a new technology comes into our life, um, we get very excited about it, and we have no idea what it means. We kind of know what it is, but we don't know what it means. And the only way that we can really make sense of it is to fit it into existing frameworks in our head. Um. And it's extraordinary, but we're we're unable to imagine what something means until we've played with it. it it's a bit like asking someone to, to imagine a smell they don't know or imagine a color they don't know. Like they can only use sort of current references as a way to explain that. You know, so when we first invented something like steam power, um, we first used it to lift up water to drive water wheels because we already had that infrastructure in place. And the only possible way we could imagine using it was to to power what we already had Um, in the same way that when we invented the electrical motor, you know, we first used that to replace steam engines because that was the obvious way to sort of apply it. So with every new innovation that is profound, we fit it into our existing mental models and our existing organizational models and our existing financial models as a way to to bring it into our lives. So we tend to kind of lubricate and sort of garnish the old way of doing things with new things. You know, even, even today, we might not realize it, but we're still using QWERTY keyboards, you know, nothing to do with the fact that's the best way to write, but just because, you know, that was based on the mechanical limitations of the past or things like uh, Morse code. And as you look around the world today, um, you know, it's amazing how much has changed, but it's also amazing how much is the same. So we still have passports, which are printed on paper that you have to carry with you. You know, you still need to show proof of age um, when you buy alcohol with Apple Pay, even though you're. I'm hoping someone asked me for that. Sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> it's still going to happen, Mike. 
Um, you know, this thing can scan 35,000 data points in our face and know precisely who we are and where we've been and who we know. But yet there we are sort of wafting a driving license in someone's face just to sort of show that we're old enough. So I think um, we, we always need to keep in mind this idea of lubrication. We, we, we get excited about a new technology. We sort of lubricate the edges. And then over a period of time, people take it more deeply. People understand the real meaning of it. People understand quite how profound it could be. And then we rethink the world around that technology. And that's when life gets very exciting to and, me. And that's where your your uh, your example, I think, on uh, electricity was very powerful, which is we plugged all the old machines into electricity and thought, look at this efficiency gain. We don't yeah, have to yeah. eat anymore. And then yeah. instead of designing the plant around electricity, which made much smaller, much faster, much more efficient plants, and then uh, I think there was a big parallel you drew with digital. Um, so, so which is, if you want to talk about that for a second, that's great. If not, if not, we can move on. But I thought that, I think, like, I mean, you know, how, how retailers took digital, just set it up like a store instead of thinking what retail could actually be. Exactly. It's, it's that stage of going from lubrication to rethinking. Um, and when you have an existing store network and you add in the internet, you start thinking about ways that you can manage inventory for digital sales. Um, when you rethink the entire industry around what the internet means, then you start thinking, what is the role of a store in this? You know, what is the role of a salesperson in this? Um, where should our inventory go? Like, how do we how do we use different data in different ways to, to optimize our supply chain? Um, how does this change the sort of fundamental economics of our business? And I, I think in a way, the one thing, I want to say is we're, we're quite smug about how well we've used technology now. You know, I think a lot of retailers would say that they've understood it all. I think a lot of advertisers would say because they put ads on Instagram uh, and in podcasts and on threads perhaps soon. Uh, you know, no, they've understood what it means. To, <laughs> they've understood what it means. But if you were to take a step back and rethink what advertising should be today, like adverts probably wouldn't look like they do now. Like the, the advertising units of today are very much like classified ads from the 1800s. You know, <laughs> e-commerce websites still look like the CS catalog from the 1910s. Um, we could get a lot more excited about what we do. And if our starting point was what's possible, not what we've done before. If our starting point for data was what do we need to know rather than what can we get? We could actually invent a much better ecosystem for everyone. We could make better ads. They could perform better. We could show them to people in a more sensible way. That so, I, there's so many ways to go with this because I want to. <laughs> I want to talk about the ads. I also want to talk about AI is now right yes. here, and everyone is uh, running around like hair on fire. I've got to do something with AI. It's going to change the world. I got to invest in this. What? Where? Where's your head at on AI? And then tell all the marketers <laughs> agencies out there. What they should be doing, because we, know to say this. Well, we also know all the boards, not yes. all, but a lot of the boards, a lot of management's going. All right, Tom, what are we doing with AI? Right. <laughs> we cannot be late. Well, one is one is um stuff can be amazing and magical and sophisticated and complex and not particularly helpful. Um, so we should not come into this and assume that because it's extraordinary and powerful, that means it does everything brilliantly. Um, so I think we need to be quite sensible about uh, at what point does this do our jobs better than us? 
And at what point is it helping us do our jobs better? And at what point is it a distraction? You know, if you can now use AI to render out personalized ads to every single drinker of Coca-Cola and say, you know, hello, Mike, it's um, a lovely July morning. You know, wouldn't your taste buds be tingled through this Coca-Cola sensation? Just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean it's a better way to, to advertise a mass market brand. So I think um, we need to take a little bit of a step back. Uh, we need to think a bit about what it means and what it makes possible, but also think about what's desirable, think about what it does better. And we may end up realizing that for the biggest brands on the planet, this actually doesn't change that much. Like You're probably already making amazingly well-produced ads. You're probably already using really good um, advanced special effects. You probably have a really good uh, corpus of data that you're using to target things for. It probably means more for the kind of advertisers that wouldn't have made good ads before. Um, for me, it's a sort of democratizing function. So in the same way that your local steakhouse would not have made a TV ad um, you know, 30 years ago because they wouldn't know how to buy TV. Um, they can now place ads on social media sites because anyone can buy ads on social right. media sites. And I think what we're really seeing is that anyone soon can make a pretty good ad. Can they make an ad better than Nike? No. Can they make an ad better than um, Apple? No, but they can make an ad that's good enough. Um, but we're, we should be sort of smart when it comes to these things. Like actually, you know, what does it help us produce, but also how does it change how we work? Um, how can we collaborate better with this? How can we get more insights from data? You know, we should have a sort of systematic approach where we go through every element of our jobs and we think about what AI means for it. And it may not change everything. You know, if you're a family run sausage maker, you know, based in Wisconsin with small teams of, of people, um, it may only be that you use AI to you know, check the nutritional label on the back of your packet. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're late. It just means you thought through it properly. So if I'm reading between the lines, a bunch of companies are going to spend a lot of money on AI before they know what they're doing and they're not going to get the outcomes that they want. I think so. And people are going to be very anxious. Like The entire consulting world is is fueled by the creation of anxiety. You know, what are you doing about <laughs> Web3? What are you doing about the metaverse? What's your blockchain strategy? You know, why are you not on LO? Why are you not in, you know, this, uh, why are you not using quantum processing? Yeah, like, it, like it's driven by this idea that everyone must be made to feel afraid and made to feel like they're missing a trick. And you don't have to do everything. Like strategy is the art of deciding what you're not going to do. Um, and AI is worth considering for every single company on the planet. But if they come to the conclusion it's not that big a deal, or they should monitor it and wait, or they should use it in specific areas only, that doesn't mean that they haven't understood it. it it's the opposite. It's like Picasso. You need to sort of learn how to paint before you can sort of learn how to unpaint sometimes. I love the anxiety quote. It was just too great. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so we've talked about AI, and you've made a career of predicting change. So what's on your radar as you look forward over the next couple of years that, you know, you're thinking about from an innovation and change standpoint? Yeah, I think um, I think we'll slowly start to um, see labor saving in almost all forms of, of customer service. You know, digital kiosks in QSR restaurants, digital kiosks in retail that retailers were huge. We'll start to see a lot more data on things like inventory. So things like RFID tags will start stores 
uh, knowing where things are. Uh, we'll start to see more interplays between different devices we have. So I think our, our phone and our watch, um, our phone, our watch and our home speaker, our phone and our watch and our, our car, our TV sets, we'll start to sort of see these devices working together as much more sort of like ambient assistance. Um, we'll start seeing more advertising you can buy from directly. You know, if, if I see an advert for a kettle or a toaster today, I don't want to watch a kind of behind the scenes uh, film about how they made a documentary about great bread. Like, I just want to buy the fucking toaster, you know, like I don't want to see, you know, an amazing TV show about food trucks. I just want to buy a blender. Um, so I think we're going to get much better at sort of getting money from people's hands and giving them something decent in return. Um, I think brands are going to become more important. I think we'll start seeing every element of our lives become branded. You know, maybe we'll have sort of, uh, you know, uh, elderly care centers that are branded by uh, LVMH. You know, maybe we'll see luxury spirit oh, companies starting to open bars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm more Prada, you know. Um, I think, you know, we'll see, we'll, 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 yeah, what, does a, what does a Nike hotel chain look like? You know, what is what would happen if Nike made condos? Um, I think we're going to see brands become even more important because everyone's overwhelmed. Like we have way too much stuff we can buy from. We don't have enough time. Uh, we need people to help us make decisions. So, so in those predictions, and I'm yeah. paraphrasing this, I could be wrong, is there's a huge amount of efficiency gains in yes. and you know, personalization, speed of buying and ease, you know, eliminating all the middle layers. And then there's the brand story. Tell me, and there's a there's a whole counter going on on brands, it, it, at least in a lot of businesses, and driven by some of the tech companies, which is this branding stuff is it's just a waste of money. All you need is the product and the search and the presence. Tell me how folks should be thinking about brands, particularly, you know, there's in my mind a bifurcation of brand believers and non-believers. Um, I mean, qu quite simply, I think the non-believers are wrong. Um, we we have the ability to measure so much stuff and we can gather so much data. And when you have that much data, you can tell any story that you want because you can frame it in every way you want. Yeah. Um, we have this lie of attribution. You know, if I look around my office right now, everything that I have bought um, has perhaps happened with a digital ad being shown to me in the process, yeah. but it's not happened because of that ad. You know, I, I own a Mercedes because of, probably 150,000 data points. Um, this idea that somehow one element of that journey is responsible for making me buy a Mercedes is, is nonsensical. Uh, so I've you're talking about the the over uh, belief on last click attribution or because I can measure it, it's working. That, but I think also um, an entire sort of uh, belief system. I mean, what we really have, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before, you know, there's a, there's almost sort of two religions out there. There's the sort of religion of the story, you know, where we care about feelings and we care about uh, seduction and we care about sort of empathy in human nature. And then there's the sort of religion of optimization, which is all about dashboards and pulling levers and A-B tests. And it's not that everything in the religion of optimization is wrong. It's just I don't think that's the sort of dominant way to think. I think if you start with a with a brand-led um, construct and then you use optimization as a refinement within that, you end up in a great place. But if you have a strong brand, all of your other metrics are easy. Um, but I think the world has sort of fallen out of love um, with the brand world and, and sort of got swung in the wrong way on the pendulum 
them towards the tech world. And I think slowly people are starting to realize, and D2C brands are quite a good uh, place to see this. You know, we're starting to realize that if all logos use the same AB tests, you know, they start to become quite identical. And if every single bloody retailer website that you're trying to give money to starts by offering you a newsletter for 20% off, and if every single website offers you free shipping if you spend over $49, um, you kind of end up in this sort of malaise of nothing um, and, and sameness. And what you start to realize is we don't need 353, you know, direct-to-consumer shower gel brands. You know, we actually need companies that build stronger brands. We need companies that make better products. We need companies that do better customer service. Um, so I am a very sort of avid believer that most of that technology stuff is kind of not nonsense like most of it is sort of refinement within a closed ecosystem where you may be able to sort of show on a spreadsheet that you created more success but actually all you've done is sort of more efficiently bring in the same people um I, there's I, a lot of really dodgy maths out there i think so i i agree with this and i but i think that is because you can measure it it, and we yeah. did a show on this earlier it becomes the prime evidence of what's working and what's not and, yes. and we've seen a lot of companies, particularly some of the the giant acquisitions that cut huge amounts yeah. of brand money, have to put brand money back in, which may not yeah. help them because it, it's not like you can turn yeah, yeah, yeah. on and off. Yeah. T- tell me, so we you put all this stuff out there. It's mostly efficiency that that you see here. Then with the the big story getting lost and people winning the big story being the bigger winners. What should marketers and advertisers be thinking about today? particularly if you are sitting in a company that is a non-believer company? Um, I think people really need to take a step back. Um, I mean, I I may be naive. I don't think I'm wrong, but maybe I'm naive. Um, Everyone's got very, very, very focused on everything that happens in the short term. Um, They've got very, very focused on everything that can be measured. And they've completely forgotten about the fact that the long or medium term is is the the place to measure real success. And then many of the things that really, really matter, you can't measure. And many times you just have to say, this is a good idea because it's a good idea. And you have to trust me that this is a good idea. And you have to sort of fight against this culture of measuring absolutely everything. And I think we have to start blowing up data um, and case studies and success that just isn't true. This is a tiny example. It's so boring. You probably want to cut it out. But I was buying a, a Big Mac yesterday. And in the past, in order to buy a Big Mac from one of those digital kiosks, you had to press about three buttons and you had a Big Mac in your mouth. Um, and now you have to sort of log in as a guest because they want you to use the loyalty card program and you have to sort of go to checkout. And then it's trying to sort of upsell you on like a balloon or a, a sort of cuddly toy or something. Um, and it's not like I sort of, you know, leave the restaurant in a fit of rage, but I'm slightly annoyed by it. I'm sure there's some data that shows that if I logged in as a loyalty card member, I would end up buying more. And they think it's the act of me logging in as a loyal member that's created, you know, this brand love and this association and this seduction and this relationship. And then miraculously, I ended up with more fries in my mouth and a a balloon. 
Um, it's just because the act of people logging in, you were actually segmenting your audience by people that had a bit more time and gave more of a shit about McDonald's and went there more often. And it's not the act of the loyalty card has made them more loyal, is that you're trapping more loyal customers. That I agree. That versus the, yeah. you know, I still remember to all beef patties, special sauce, pickles, <laughs> onions on a sesame seed bun, which was not probably measurable. But was powerful. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I think I think we need to go the other way, which is to, to to sort of forget about so much data and forget about immediacy and forget about the false precision of it and just think, is this a good idea? You know, like people, brands still sponsor football teams because they know it's a kind of good idea, net, net, net. You know, brands still sponsor airlines because they know it's a good idea, sort of net, net, net. And I think we need to get much better at just taking a bit of a step back and thinking, is this product a good product for us to do? Is our customer service good enough? Do I like flying with this airline? How does it feel to check into this hotel? You know, what about our car rental experience is crappy? Um, because actually we kind of know all the answers. Like if we're good at our jobs, like we know what a good retail experience is. Um, if, if we have time to, to look at um, how other companies do these things in different sectors, we can get really inspired about what we can now do. Um, it should be, you know, if you buy a pair of jeans, you should be able to reorder the same pair of jeans just by, you know, taking a picture of a QR code on the inside. Like that, that doesn't need um, focus groups to make that happen. It just needs someone with a bit more um, desire to make a difference. So I think we, we need to get much sort of bolder, more ambitious. We need to get really proud of what we can make happen every day. We need to sort of fall in love with people as customers and 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 sort of take pride in serving them better. Um, and we need to get really enthusiastic about what technology makes possible um, and not think of it as something that's going to take our jobs or kill our department or take, you know, or make it boring. We need to think about the new possibilities that opens up. So it's going to be a super interesting road. I, can't, I have to segue off of this because you just gave the talk about hold the line, tell the big story, the brand matters, but also you were just at con. And one of the things yeah. you wrote in Nowism was that you felt, <laughs> and I have never actually gone to con, the, uh, that you felt that uh, the industry felt lost um, it, it, in, in Nowism. And, and so tell me what you were thinking there. And this is probably a big observation on the industry, having a giant meeting at con, giving out a lot of awards. <laughs> what's what's going on there? And con statement you just you just talked about. It feels sort of small, like it, it feels sort of parochial, you know, like it, like it feels a bit like um, it was a sort of clip years ago about a kind of movie star, you know, that was offered contracts in TV, you know, and, yeah. and suddenly the sort of screen got small. Um, advertising used to feel like it was part of the culture, maybe even created culture. You know, if you worked in London and you led the British Airways account, you know, you could get a table in any restaurant in the city. Yeah. Um, if you worked in advertising in New York, you could sort of, you know, be proud on any date that you went on. Um, the industry has become quite sort of parochial. It's become quite tactical. Um, it's become quite embarrassed. Um, it doesn't know where to turn. It doesn't know whether, you know, in the online world, you know, Wait, the idea is sort of. It's embarrassed, um, it's embarrassed by what? What's it embarrassed by? I think it's embarrassed by the fact it's now supposed to sell stuff. You know, the, the reality is that um, there is no line between advertising and commerce anymore. You know, you can get an ad up for Coca-Cola on the, you know, Target website and you can buy Coca-Cola straight away. 
um we were sort of embarrassed that we're in the industry of shifting goods we're kind of embarrassed that you know below the line and the sort of grubbiness of coupons um and the sort of nastiness of in-store retail and wobblers we're sort of embarrassed that actually that's sort of part of our domain now um so as time goes on we sort of segmented the industry into these very different units and we've we've had sort of different sort of people deal with those small things and then I think we always thought in creative that we were kind of sat on top of them all. And I think now there's a realization that many of those lines don't make any sense anymore. And many of those lines are blurring. Um, and that actually the conversations we need to have are about commerce. They are about reputation. They are about PR. They are about placement. They are about price. Um, and I think it's exciting. I think it means that we have all these new domains to think about. You know, it means we get to think about what a physical and a digital experience for, for commerce should look like. It means we get to think about how social media interfaces with um, paid ads. I think it makes it very exciting. But I think what's tending to happen is people in the industry are just confused by it all. You know, they keep on being told that the metaverse is the next big thing. They keep on being told they have to have an NFT strategy. And I think everyone's just sort of walking around in a daze, um, sort of hoping it all goes away. But I, I think it goes to, back to the discussion we opened the, the podcast with, which is... yeah. You're not actually looking at the marketplace for what it is. You're looking yes. at the marketplace for where you are. Yes. And the yeah. uh, the uh, the ad business it's still grounded in its how it grew up. It, it's not looking at how the whole marketplace is moving. So so I think I think we ought to do a whole other show on, on, on this <laughs> because 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 I have a lot of questions for you and I'm. I, I, so if you'll do another show, I absolutely do it. will do another show. But so, to, but to to finish to finish today, and we may do more than one show because I I think this this is too fun. So uh, <laughs> I want to I want to I want to close with with two two questions. But the first one is best and worst predictions you made in your career because you you're in the business of making predictions. Uh, you yes, know, tell us. Um, uh, one way I get out of this is my predictions always quite vague. Um, so even when I'm wrong, it's kind of like, oh, I'm kind of wrong. And even when I'm right, it's like, oh, I was kind of right. Um, I've been very good at thinking that most technologies that come along probably won't change that much. You know, so I was very outspoken about NFTs being a waste of time. I was very outspoken about Web3 and the metaverse being nonsense. Um, during COVID, I was um, I put my money where my mouth is and I bought lots of stocks and shares in oil companies at their lows and restaurants and um, hotel chains, you know, because I knew that the world would come back and it would look. Yeah, so when I see you, I know who's buying dinner. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I've been right quite a lot but in vague ways. Um, I've been wrong. Um, I, I realize there's a bit of a disconnect between me and how people really live their lives. Um, you know, so I thought that AirPods wouldn't be that successful because I thought people would be a bit embarrassed to wear them because they look quite stupid. Um, I thought that something like TikTok wouldn't take off as much as it did because I thought it was sort of um, nutritionally empty and it was just sort of stupid and dumb. Um, I th I'm particularly bad at sort of younger people trends. You know, I, I kind of realize I'm not that good uh, imagining life as like a 16 year old. Um, so generally speaking, I'm always going around saying this won't be that big a deal. Um, and sometimes it is. Got it. OK, last question. Wrap up this session with some practical advice for our listeners who are 
you know, pretty much sea level or ad folks yeah. or people around the world? Um, I think the greatest uh, technique you can ever use um, is to do one thing, and that's to be aware of what's not changed. Um, you know, I know sort of Jeff Bezos is famous for saying this, but almost everything in marketing today um, on a philosophical and conceptual level, and when we look at principles, is exactly the same as it was in the 1900s. You know, if you look at an ad campaign from 1935, you know, you'll see it's still for direct-to-consumer mattresses and, and, you know, prefabricated homes and whatnot. Almost everything has stayed the same. Um, so the key thing really is not to assume that everything's different, but to find the places where it is different. And more often than not, those differences are quite small and they're quite sort of tactical. So the question is not, you know, what does advertising look like on social media? The, the questions tend to be more about, well, which, you know, cookies do you use and how do you track it and stuff? Um, so one, take a step back and realize what's not changed. Two, like understand the altitude of your knowledge. Because I think, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but, you know, in the 1990s, you know, TV was quite complicated. There are millions of different networks. Some ads had to be on PAL, some were CCAM, some were NTSC. If you're doing printing, you had to care about paper stock and bleed and RGB or CMYK. There was all this complexity. But as a, as a CMO, that you know, that wasn't your job. Like, it wasn't your job to talk about different types of printers, like it wasn't your job to sort of feel the card that the coupons would be printed on. You know, your job is way above that. And I think somehow we've been sort of confused into this idea that we should understand the details, you know, that you should feel vulnerable, you know, on a stage or in a board meeting, you know, if you don't understand how, um, you know, cookies are placed or how email is delivered, or you, you should sort of be worried if you don't know the dimensions of a skyscraper. I, I, I think this is, this is super yeah. important because I do think there is a huge yeah. game at a lot of companies driven by people, a lot of people in power and sometimes board members or others, which is yeah. a game of gotcha, which is if yes. you don't know these details, Absolutely. You, any, you can't be any good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and so what you get is people focused on the minutia of the data, how all the data have up. And now you have thousands of data pieces, too. Yeah. Actually, not knowing any of them, you watch people get consumed pre-board meetings in case they get asked a question about something very small. <laughs> no, and what's happened is you end up with these people who really should be talking about um, you know, supply chain issues or they should be talking about the impact of currency um, fluctuations. They should be talking about staffing issues. They should be talking about big CMO topics. Um, and instead, they're talking about, you know, first party data versus third party data. They're talking about, you know, uh, Google's move to remove cookies. They're talking about which influencers bigger on hot face versus, you know, wank button. You know, everything's sort of become very little, you know. And it's a, this sort of big like show off where you can walk around the streets of Cannes and it's like, oh, you know, I was talking to this new influencer called Zubyface99 and someone's there <laughs> thinking, oh, I have not heard of Zubyface99. And then another stage they're talking about, you know, do you use sort of Adicom Plus to do your tracking or do you use, you know, Curasai 3000? And everyone's making it up. Like, like I, I suppose people have no idea what they're talking about. I am Zuby Face 99. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, well, your ideal tech, uh, you know, tech stack. Well, I'm using this sort of API scraper that you know integrates the you know the the binary interface of the 3.9 module with the GPU of, of five. And someone else is going, oh yeah, you know, that, that we tried that last year and it was 1.2 percent more efficient. They're making it up. They're, they're, honestly, they're, most oh, people and the efficiency up. metrics on these are all species. So, so we're going to do at least one more show. Maybe we're going to do a regular run of shows because, you know, I, I can't, I can't, I, it's great to end on Zuby Face 99. Oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of his. All right. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Evergreen, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, which include an operations-trained CEO dishes on what he really thinks about marketing. <laughs> a B-School professor talks about brand value, measures, and the metaverse. He was with you. He didn't think the metaverse was a big deal either. Mm -hmm. And then a primer on the marketing CFO and why you might need it for your organization. Hey, all you marketers, stay safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your workdays and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life.